Hello, listeners. Just a quick note about this episode you're about to listen to. I'm going to try something different. I wanted to read to you an article I wrote about an interview I did on my last trip to Ukraine. Now, I wanted to do this because it does have an urban aspect to it, but it's also such a touching story, such an amazing story of survival, resistance, evasion, escape. Some of the things that I talked about in my military career, many listeners will have experienced even the school for that, but I wanted to try reading the article too, and you'll let me know if you liked it. I'm sure you're going to like the story. I sure hope you do. Well, enjoy. You're listening to the Urban Warfare Project Podcast from the Modern War Institute at West Point. I'm John Spencer, Chair of Urban Warfare Studies at MWI and host of this podcast. All right, let's get to it. So what I'm about to read to you is an article I published originally with the Soldier of Fortune magazine called Nine Months of Hell in Mariupol, How Real Life Rambo Survived, Resisted, and Escaped Captivity. Now, I'll probably title this podcast The Urban Rambo because it does have an urban component to it. And I do believe that there is something unique to surviving, resisting, and escaping in an urban environment compared to a rural. And if you open the U.S. Army Survival Manual, there won't be much in there about urban. Or if you attend one of the U.S. military SEER schools, you may or may not get the experience where you learn uniqueness to urban. Because if it's truly an urban, then it's going to be civilians and your ability to stay hidden could be enhanced or it could be inhibited by the civilian presence in the environment. But I digress. Let's get to the story. And I'll probably elaborate, which is another reason why I wanted to try the podcast, both to keep the format of the original article, which I'll put in the show notes, but also to when I have the Whenever I feel like it, I'll elaborate based on the interview with Gina that I did, which was really hard to do, and you'll hear why, but as I sat in front of him and listened to his story, I just couldn't believe what I was hearing, to be honest. I mean, I, I couldn't believe that, that that guy, this guy, this man who had done this was sitting in front of me in my favorite cafe in Kiev. So let's get to it. As I sat in a clean, elegant cafe in downtown Kiev, it was nearly impossible for me to comprehend the story I was being told. My interviewee was a quiet, humble, former active-duty Ukrainian Marine from Mariupol named Gennady, or Gina for short. But while Gina was soft-spoken, something about his demeanor told me this man was a warrior. The more I listened to him tell his story, the more I realized he was not just a warrior— He was a modern-day Rambo with a real story of survival, evasion, resistance, and escape like I had never heard before. Gina lived in Mariupol. He actually grew up in Mariupol. He joined the Army in 2010 after making a choice to either work in the massive factories of Mariupol or enter military service. He served in the Ukrainian Army to include the Airborne Forces and later joined the Marines to include with the 1st separate Fedosia Marine Battalion. After leaving the military, Gina worked for various government security forces that he, he said he couldn't discuss, but 
you can kind of go with their very special security forces, if you know what I mean. He saw combat in multiple places, including Mariupol in 2014 when Russia or Russian-backed forces tried to overtake the city but failed. When Russia launched its full-scale invasion of Ukraine on February 24, 2022, Gina was relaxing in his girlfriend's apartment. Russia had launched multiple simultaneous attacks on cities across Ukraine to include Kyiv, Chernihiv, Sumy, Kharkiv, Kherson, and Mariupol. The start of the invasion in Mariupol was undeniable as bombs and rockets rained down on pre-planned targets across the city. Gina's girlfriend smiled, surprised by what she thought was celebratory fireworks. Gina looked at her and said, those aren't fireworks. The war has begun. And he told her he had to go. Gina left his girlfriend's apartment and headed to his own, where he had all his military equipment, all his clothing, but he needed a weapon. So he called a friend that he knew could help. Now armed, he made a few more calls and became a part of a self-organized small group of volunteers that included a seven-year-old man who was only armed with a shotgun. Gina explained to me that he was a very spirited old man. Gina became the deputy and later the commander of this group. Once formed, the group immediately moved to the outskirts of the city to engage the invading Russians. They met a convoy of tanks and mechanized infantry already at the city's perimeter within a day or two of the opening of the war. Gina and his group engaged the convoy with their RPGs and small arms. It was a successful engagement, but Gina was already worried about the lack of sufficient weapons based on what he was seeing already approaching the city. It only took days for the combat to intensify, so much that Gina remembered fighting a group of Russians in two adjacent houses. The two groups, Gina's and the Russians, threw grenades at each other yelling, you surrender, and the other replying, no, you surrender. Each day, the situation got worse. The bombing of the city seemed to Gina to be 24 hours a day. One of the bombs hit a house Gina and his team were in. They luckily survived. About a week into the full-scale assault of Mariupol, Gina's group got cut off from the other Ukrainian force fighting in the city. The combat intensified. Members of Gina's group began to be severely wounded and killed around him. It was at this point, Gina said, I already realized that most likely I will die but I was more scared to be captured. Eventually, the volunteer group was reduced to only two men, Gina and one other. Gina believed they needed to get to the Azovstal steel factory where he knew other military forces were. He also knew from growing up in Mariupol that this was the strongest defensive position in the city. Gina and his battle buddy found an abandoned car they were able to start. They formed a plan to just drive to the Azovstal. Gina knew There was little chance they could make it, but they had to try. The path actually looked open. On the way, the car hit a mine, killing Gina's teammate and badly wounding him and knocking him unconscious. He awoke laying in the street, not knowing how long he had been out. He crawled on all fours to the nearest yard of the nearest house just to gain some sense of security. He crawled under the fence and immediately fell unconscious again. When he awoke, he managed to stand despite the overwhelming nausea he was feeling. He stumbled into the nearby house. Gina took off his helmet, his weapon, his equipment, and his military clothing and hid it all in the cabinets. 
He changed into some men's clothing he found in the house. As he gained consciousness, he realized where he was in the city. He was actually not far from his own apartment complex. With no safe way to reach the Azovstal factory, Gina decided to carefully head back to his apartment to decide what to do next. He crawled on all fours many times along the route to evade detection from any possible Russian soldiers he thought might be in the area. Although clearly injured, he joined many of his neighbors in the basement of the building he lived in. He tried to blend in with the other civilians, assuming most had no idea that he had previously served in the military or had just returned from fighting the Russian invaders in the city. Gina asked if there was a bed in the basement. People told him yes, and he laid down on that bed, still concussed from the explosion. He passed out again. He didn't know how long he was unconscious. He awoke to a neighbor trying to give him a piece of an apple. Gina eventually looked outside, and he saw many Russian soldiers. The number of Russian soldiers patrolling the neighborhood seemed to increase daily. Soon after Gina gained full consciousness, a man came into the basement yelling for help. The man's apartment had caught fire after Russians had bombed it, and his pregnant wife and children were trapped inside, and he asked for help. After no one stepped up, still somewhat weak, Gina stood. I will help. He saw the man's pregnant wife and three and seven-year-old daughters were trapped inside the burning building. Gina broke through the door, helped them to the street, and then was forced to run back with them, avoiding the explosions of even more shelling that was occurring. They all made it back to Gina's basement. He felt good about what he had accomplished in helping the man save his family. Gina was soaked in sweat at this point, so he removed his shirt to try it out. It was a fateful decision. Only a few days later, the very man whose family Gina helped rescue turned Gina into the Russians as a suspected Ukrainian soldier. Gina awoke with a rifle to his face as the Russian soldier looked at him and looked at the man, asking, This guy? The man replied, Yes, that is him. Look at his tattoos. Since Gina had many military-related tattoos. The Russian soldier forced Gina to strip, and once he saw those military-related tattoos, they began beating Gina on the spot. The soldiers immediately started asking Gina if he was from the Azov Regiment. He wasn't, but he knew to remain quiet either way. The commander of the Russian forces was brought to the basement where Gina was and ordered the other soldiers to take Gina to their headquarters. Gina was moved to a home in Mariupol being used by the Russians as a headquarters, they had also turned the basement into a makeshift prison and torture chamber. Gina was immediately asked more questions, but he remained silent. Gina was taped to a radiator in the basement of that house. He said it was very dark, no lights. He could hear that there were other prisoners in the room with him, but he could not see them. Gina was tortured and beaten daily for weeks. Many of Gina's teeth were kicked in during these beatings. One day, a Russian soldier walked into his room and said, You've been sentenced to death. The soldier pointed to the other prisoners in the basement. Oh yeah, you two, you, you, and you. Gina and the others were taken to an unfinished church nearby and placed in a row side by side on their knees. Bam, bam, bam. Gina heard the shots of the rifle killing the men systematically down the line. 
He was confident that this was the moment he would die. Two men before Gina, though, the shooting stopped, and he heard the Russians say, well, someone will have to clean this mess up. Shortly thereafter, a car pulled up, and Gina and the remaining men were required to help stack the executed prisoners in the car. He was then taken back to the basement and retaped to the radiator. The next day, Gina was subjected to an identical nightmare scenario. But again, he survived the execution ceremony. Gina's psychological torture also included constantly being told the major cities of Ukraine had fallen. Kiev is gone. Lviv is gone. But one day, he was brought to the upper level of the house and was told by his captors that they were going to join the others to storm the Azovstal factory. He didn't understand how the major cities of Kiev and Lviv had fallen, but the factory was still unconquered. While he couldn't be sure, he believed he had been in the basement for about three or four weeks. Either way, he was happy to hear Ukrainians were still holding the factory. The house bustled with all the Russians preparing to leave for Azovstal factory. At one point, he was told he would be dressed in their uniform and be forced to walk in front of their assault. But the Russians instead tied Gina up more than he had been up to that point. On top of the tape, they added ropes to ensure he was strongly secured. They moved him to a corner of a room on the second floor of the house and shut the door. For many hours, all he heard was silence. Gina decided he would take the moment to try to escape. He was able to remove the tape and ropes with his teeth. He then fell out of the window of the second story floor, landing on the street below like a sack of potatoes. Although he was weak from the beatings, from the explosion earlier, and the lack of food and water, he had managed to get to his feet. He started walking down the street away from the house. He got no more than 500 meters or so away from the house when a lady started pointing and yelled, He's escaping. Another civilian man ran up to Gina and began to pull him back to the house he had just escaped. The woman yelled, I'll go get somebody. Drained of all of this energy at this point, Gina was dragged and dragged back into the house. He believed his escape attempt was over. He begged the man, a skinnier young man, he believed was no more than 20-ish, to let him go. The man would not. And Gina resisted and somehow was able to also escape this young man's grasp. He then ran through the house, out into the backyard. Gina never looked back, and this time he stayed in the yards and alleys of the houses rather than try to walk down any streets. Gina got far enough to think he was safe from the young man who had grabbed him. He still feared being caught by Russian soldiers on the streets. Gina hid in the basements of one house for a few hours and then carefully moved to another, trying to stay hidden, but knew he needed to not stay stationary. He did not know what to do next. He knew that he would not be able to make it to the ass of Stahl factory, although he desperately wanted to. His face was too bruised and bloody to blend in with other civilians walking around. He had remembered hearing from his neighbors back in that basement that the left bank of Mariupol was less patrolled, and controlled by the less competent DNR forces, the Donetsk People's Republic. After a close call with a group of Russian troops in a mechanized convoy, Gina decided to try to get to the left bank of Mariupol. Gina knew Mariupol. He grew up there. He had lived there most of his life. So he planned a route and began his movement. 
He was surprised by all the civilian dead bodies lying along his route, having been there for weeks. Many buildings seemingly cut in half by an angry god after Russian bombings. There was a dead silence in some areas, as if the bugs, all life, really had been extinguished. But Gina finally made it to the left bank. He found a section of completely burned out and destroyed buildings he thought would be less patrolled by Russians. The destroyed buildings he lived in had no electricity, no running water, and no heat. Actually, most of the city at this point was left without these essential services. But the ruined buildings Gina had selected did have one advantage. It had what he described as massive, unexploded ordnance or bombs that had not exploded, which were littered around the building and neighborhood. He believed that this actually did keep many of the Russian patrols out of the area. Gina did have to avoid all the drones used by the Russians. He eventually figured out a pattern for the drones, and when they were up in the area, he avoided them and pretty much secluded himself to only going out at night. So Gina consciously settled into this new home. He knew he needed to just survive. He would dig and improve and deepen his basement hideout daily. He created multiple entrances so that he could get in and out of the basement as quickly as possible in case of emergency. He found a mattress for a bed and used old rugs as blankets, constantly working on his basement and gathering anything he could from the environment. At this point, Gina was starving. He found a can of dog food in the rubble of his building. He didn't need it for the first four or five days, but when the hunger pains got bad enough, he ate it. He drank from puddles of muddy water left from rain. He later used plastic bottles full of sawdust and sand to try to filter any of that water he found. He discovered a garbage where he could. He found an old bun once and ate only a tiny piece of it a day trying to make it last. He ate pigeons, dogs, or any other animals he could find. He made small fires away from his living area to cook anything dead he needed to eat. But, as he said, he had to extinguish the fire as fast as possible because he was deathly afraid what smoke the small fires would make and give, possibly give his position away. He did not have time to boil anything. He laughed when I talked to him and he said, oh, well, I couldn't make, you know, I wasn't making three-hour pigeon soup, if you know what I mean. One of Gina's major struggles was that he really couldn't walk. Something was badly wrong with one of his knees. He could stand with the aid of a makeshift crutch he had made for himself, but he could not walk. If Gina really wanted to go out, he had to crawl, and that's what he did. Gina would crawl around at night looking for new supplies or scraps of equipment just to have something to do. If he crawled a couple hours in one direction, he could make it to a nearby landfill that was, was really a few kilometers away. But in the landfill, Gina found clothes and expired or rotten food he could see if he could keep down. Gina slept a lot during the daytime when it was too risky to go out. He did not know how long he would sleep for at a time, but it was a lot. He was tempted to organize or plan an escape to somewhere, but he couldn't risk and was so afraid of getting captured and tortured like that again. It wasn't like the movies where you see a civilian and all of a sudden you think you're saved. Gina had to stay hidden from all civilians at all times. So he reasonably struggled 
with the thoughts going through his mind daily. But he forbade himself from planning for the future. He set out just to survive one day over and over. He told me, you have to sit and wait and hope for the best, that something will one day happen. And it is this hope that gets you through. One day, Gina met a Ukrainian girl. She would initially not get close to him, and she would just stay at a distance. When she did stop, she would just stare. The sight of her was a massive emotional boost to Gina. She was a connection to something greater outside of his world of survival. Initially, just the emotional support she brought was enough. But over time, the girl began to leave food for Gina to collect when nobody was around. Well, one day, weeks if not months after the first contact with the Ukrainian girl, a phone appeared. Gina had destroyed his own phone before he was captured the first time. Gina just stared at the phone for hours. He did not know what to do with it. I mean, who was he going to call? Who would answer? The phone had a Russian SIM card and went on. It used a Russian cell network. Now they're only one over Mariupol. What passwords to what accounts could he even remember? Well, surprising even himself, Gina remembered his Instagram password. It was a platform he never took seriously. And it was one with an added bonus that his account did not require password authentication. But he was scared, very scared, about who to write. Who could he trust? He first looked for any soldiers or Marines he had once served with, and especially those he served with in combat. And he reached out to them, and he got a hold of a few. The friends that Gina did reach through Instagram, of course, had a lot of questions. Gina was cautious and answered them slowly, worried about the consequences of letting anyone know where he was. When Gina was sure he could trust his friends, and they were sure that it was actually him, he began to ask if there was anything that could be done to help him. The awareness of Gina's existence and situation slowly expanded through military channels. But Gina said proposals from the people he was talking to began to come in as, well, nothing can be done. Just give up. Maybe we can trade you for somebody later. But Gina did not think he could live through another detention in the shape he was in. He also didn't think that he would ever be traded. I mean, he wasn't a, a member of the military. He had no value. The military friends tried to provide moral support. They tried to lighten the mood with dark jokes about how bad of his situation was in. Man, your position sucks. I uh, hate to be you. Uh, those type of dark jokes that only us in the military can relate to. And he respected those that said, there's nothing we can do. His hope of anything coming from them and from the cell phone was very low. New Year's came and went. Gina knew it had passed and celebrated the holiday by waging yet another war against another rat invasion of his basement. The New Year also brought freezing weather. Gina had little to escape the cold, and the memories of it were very vivid. He tried to sleep on top of three mattresses stacked on top of each other. He stuffed used trash bags and newspapers inside of his clothes. He tried to heat bottles of water, risking the length of his small fires, and then placed the bottles of water inside of his clothing to try to stay warm. He even tried to do exercises, but in his weak and wounded state, there was very little he could do. He tried to do a pseudo push-up, 
with his injured leg, he could do about one, and then he really wanted to go to sleep. Well, one day, one of Gina's friends on Instagram reached out and connected him to what he called a, a special group of people. Some of those people being representatives of the Navy who said, hey, we hear you're a good Marine. And they told Gina they knew his situation and had developed a plan to evacuate him. But they also said there was a 1% chance the plan would work. It was up to Gina. Gina struggled with the decision to chance the evacuation. He couldn't sleep while considering it. He asked himself how much longer could he survive like this, like an animal? A few years? A few months? A few days? He was young and knew he wanted to live. Not in a basement, surviving like an animal, but to live again in freedom. So he decided to give 1% a chance. And on February 13th, 2023, a mission was executed to evacuate Gina from Mariupol to Ukrainian-controlled territory, and it was a success. Gina spent over nine months behind enemy lines in that survival mode. I can't imagine, and I couldn't imagine. And as I tell you this story, I can barely imagine myself. And when I interviewed Gina, who was telling me the story like we were discussing any experience, I still couldn't imagine what he had been through and his mental state at the time. Gina now lives in Kiev, going through extensive rehabilitation, both physically and mentally. He says he's still adapting. He doesn't yet feel comfortable in a quiet, but also bustling, noisy city. He spends a lot of time actually training other Ukrainian military forces around the Kiev area. And when he's around the military veteran, it's easier. But walking and talking amongst the civilians remains hard. Gina also struggles with understanding that a, a year passed while he was in survival mode. It's like time stood still for him. He still walks into places in Kiev and for a second wonders, why isn't anybody wearing a mask? Thinking he's still in COVID protocols. But slowly he's finding a new normal. Gina is now a Marine on a new mission. He wants to recover mentally, physically, emotionally as fast as he can. He wants to get healthy so that he can serve in the Ukrainian military again, if you can believe that. He told me, we will win. We must win. I have to be prepared. If you're not prepared, things might end badly. Gina's action during captivity embody many of the lessons taught in militaries around the world, such as our own U.S. military's various survival, evasion, resistance, and escape seer schools. His story should inspire generations of soldiers and people in general about the will to live, the human ability to survive, and the drive to resist and live. I was in awe at meeting Gina, and I'm honored to tell just a small portion of a story that I, I think should take its place in history as an example of the human soul and the ability of a human fighting to be free. Bravo Zulu, Gina. Thanks for listening to the Urban Warfare Project podcast. The podcast is produced by the Modern War Institute at West Point. What you hear in each episode are the views of their participants and do not represent the positions of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. 
You can subscribe to the Urban Warfare Project podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And be sure to check out NDY's other podcasts, as well as the new articles we're publishing every day on our website. Thanks again for listening.